0: Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast All Things Ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Water Women Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Last week we heard from Katie Osborne from Fisherwoman Podcast, and today we're going to be hearing a direct episode from Fisherwoman, so you guys can get a little bit of a taste of what Katie's podcast is like. So today we're going to be hearing from Sarah O'Neill, a PhD candidate at the University of Washington, and we're going to be learning all about the impacts of the pebble mine on Bristol Bay sockeye salmon. So let's jump right into that and
1: enjoy. Welcome to Fisherwomen. I'm Katie Osborne. Today we are journeying north to Alaska, to the headwaters of the Nooshigak and Quijak rivers, the two largest river systems feeding into Bristol Bay. If you picture Alaska as the head of an elephant, with the Aleutian Islands stretching out before it like the elephant's trunk, then Bristol Bay is just above that trunk and the watersheds of the Nushagak and Kuijak rivers extend upwards towards the elephant's cheeks. Together, these two river basins compose about half the overall Bristol Bay watershed, home to the largest sockeye salmon fishery in the world. I think of sockeye as the Christmas salmon, because sockeye preparing to spawn take on a deep, vibrant red on their bodies, while their heads and tails are an olive green, giving them a decidedly festive look in their full breeding colors. Approximately half the sockeye salmon production in Bristol Bay watershed comes from the Nushagak and Queijak river basins. Each year, the commercial fishery for sockeye salmon in Bristol Bay generates thousands of jobs and billions in revenue. Meanwhile, sockeye are also a critical subsistence fishery for native communities in the region. In the late 1980s, copper deposits were discovered in the headwaters of the Nushegak. Mineral right leases for this region, called the Pebble Deposit, are currently held by the Pebble Limited Partnership, which is wholly owned by Northern Dynasty Minerals Limited, a Canadian mining company. The application process to permit the mine is ongoing. Here to talk to me about this and why copper mines pose a particular threat to aquatic life, especially salmon, is Sarah O'Neill. Sarah has over 20 years of international experience in freshwater ecology of Salmonid ecosystems. Her research spans the Pacific Rim and the Southern Atlantic Ocean. Currently, she is a PhD candidate in the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences at the University of Washington. There, she researches the temporal and spatial variability of salmon habitat. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's my pleasure. You started in Alaska by establishing baseline data for the fish and invertebrates in headwater streams. Could you briefly describe that work and why it was needed? It's
2: estimated that over 80% of Alaska's streams have never been surveyed for fish distribution of any kind, just because the state is so huge and so wet and so remote. So our initial mission was basically just to go out and chase fish and figure out where they were, but that did turn pretty quickly within a year or two into a long-term monitoring project. I don't do much work down here anymore, but my understanding is that there's sort of a general assumption that in the lower 48, there are that there are salmon in a water body until proven otherwise. And... The opposite of that is true in Alaska in that you have to document salmon in a water body. It has to be documented by a biologist with geo-referenced photographs in order for a stream to get a couple of statutory protections that it doesn't otherwise have if salmon are not documented. Kind of a bizarre burden of proof given that There's still a heck of a lot more salmon left in Alaska than there are in the lower 48.
1: That is indeed bizarre. Thanks for that introduction. Now, let's get into the mine. Why do mining proponents want to develop the pebble deposit?
2: It's the world's largest undeveloped copper deposit. And, you know, none of us, no matter how much we care about the environment, can deny that we use copper. I'm using it right now to talk to you. All these electronics are using copper.
1: Well, can't argue with that. Could you describe the site of the proposed pebble mine for listeners beyond the fact that despite the name, it is not in fact a mine for pebbles?
2: The pebble mine is proposed for headwater streams. It's the headwaters of the two largest sockeye salmon producing streams in Bristol Bay. It so happens, unfortunately, that that copper deposit, well, it's copper, gold, and molybdenum, but it's primarily copper deposit, straddles those two largest producing watersheds. So it sits right on top of the watershed divide between the Nushegak and the Kuijak. And this is all basically a giant sponge. It's like a huge wetland. So... Containing that waste to any one watershed is virtually, if not precisely, impossible. It's hundreds of miles from the bay, and the developers of the mine will tell you that over and over again. Oh, this mine isn't in Bristol Bay. It's not going to impact Bristol Bay salmon, but... Needless to say, those are the nursery grounds, nursery grounds and spawning grounds for the largest sockeye salmon population
1: on earth. Thank you for that. And it lines up perfectly with my next question, which is what factors allow Bristol Bay to be the largest producer of sockeye in the world?
2: There are multiple reasons that Bristol Bay is the largest producer and it actually has five large river systems coming into the bay. Totally undeveloped, intact habitat. There's just a handful of very small flying villages, almost no road access to speak of. It's a very lake-dominated system. I don't know about dominated, but there are a lot of lakes, which of course sockeye prefer for rearing in. There are river-rearing sockeye, but by and large, most sockeye spend a year or two of their lives rearing in lakes, and there are nice clean perfectly suited lakes for all those fish to rear out there so it's this just combination of the diversity of habitat the diversity of life histories the number of lakes the lack of development i mean the only really notable impact to that fishery to date is the commercial fishery itself and that has been exceptionally managed like, better than any fishery I'm aware of anywhere in the world. And so all of those factors have combined to produce this just absolutely spectacular freak of nature, like good freak of nature. I think it's probably one of the biggest mass migrations we've still got around. It's absolutely phenomenal to witness flying over those streams. It looks like Blood flowing through veins. It's just thick with bright red salmon in numbers I've never seen anywhere else on earth. It gives you chills.
1: That sounds incredible. I definitely hope to see it one day. Now, I know that sockeye is the major fishery in Bristol Bay, but the bay is also home to all five Pacific salmon species, sockeye, chinook, coho, chum, and pink. So are there other important salmon fisheries in the Bristol Bay watershed that listeners should know about?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth mentioning also with respect to salmon. Salmon are threatened with extinction, threatened and or extinct, like all over the lower 48, as you know well. So the New Shigak River, where the currently proposed mine infrastructure, which is almost definitely going to expand into another watershed. But in the new Shigak, where the currently proposed small mine infrastructure sits, also produces what is frequently one of the world's largest king salmon populations, Chinook salmon. And those guys are blinking off the map, even in some of the least developed watersheds on Earth, like the Yukon, for reasons that we still don't entirely understand. It's of course it's all kinds of reasons. There's no single one. But what we do know is that the New Shigak still very frequently supports some of the largest runs of king salmon, which are super valuable as subsistence fish because they are larger and fattier and they arrive earlier than the sockeye. And they are also valuable to the commercial fishing industry because of how much folks can charge for them in restaurants and grocery stores.
1: Just went salmon fishing myself, and yeah, those Chinook are called kings with good reason. What about the non-salmon fisheries? Could you run through some of the important freshwater fish species in the region? There are
2: very highly recreationally prized rainbow trout, and there are Dolly Varden and Arctic char, which are Fun to catch and important subsistence species, and Arctic grayling, which are endangered down here in Montana, and and then there are whitefish. Very close to the, just kind of on the backside of those two watersheds, are whitefish populations that are the second most important subsistence fish to one of the villages, at least one of the villages closest to the mine site, and you know, needless to say those resident fishes that don't spend part of their life cycle in the marine environment may likely be even more impacted by mining activity since they don't get to escape.
1: Excellent point. And that leads to my next question. What are your main concerns with this mine in particular?
2: Copper has been a main focus of our concern since it is a copper mine and there will be copper left. They only take copper out of the bucketfuls that they grind up that are actually profitable. So if it's not profitable, it goes in another pile and that pile is exposed to air and maybe rainwater. Maybe it's put into a tailings pond facility, but there's absolutely no doubt that this mine will increase copper levels. And in all likelihood, they will not be able to contain that copper to the tailings facility or treat it entirely successfully with their treatment facilities and increases of just two to 20 parts per billion so two to 20 drops in an olympic-sized swimming pool can impair a salmon's ability to smell which is what they use to find food and avoid predators and find mates and they can actually even smell their own kin but very importantly, with respect to salmon, it's what they use to home back to their natal streams where they were spawned themselves, which is what maintains the genetic diversity that is essential to the overall sustainability of the populations in Bristol Bay.
1: Those are all such great points. Now, I'm hoping you can go into a little more detail on the mining process itself and how this mine at this site would impact salmon and other aquatic life. So what does the mining look like and what's the actual mechanisms of impact? This is
2: a very low grade deposit, which means you have to dig up a whole bunch of earth in order to get a little bit of copper. And with all that sulfide material, as you dig it up and you ground it up and expose it to air and water... It ultimately combines, those three elements ultimately combine to form sulfuric acid, which is the basis for what is called acid mine drainage. And let's say most of the metals out there will be leached into that acid solution. So basically you have this toxic soup of acidic, metal-rich material And you have the added issues with the baseline water chemistry out there. One of my chemist friends calls it insanely pure. The conductivity out there, the dissolved solutes in the water are so low that it fried our pH meters, which rely on ionic strength to work. I never do that until I went out there and our pH meters kept frying. There's very low conductivity, very few dissolved solutes in the water, pH is neutral around there, and there is uh, low alkalinity and very low dissolved organic carbon. And some of those elements sort of combine to bind metals if they're leached into the water, particularly dissolved organic carbon will bind with those metals, but there is none. There's virtually none out there. So there's nothing that's going to take those metals, once dissolved by the acid mine drainage, there's nothing that's going to take those metals out of solution or out of the ambient stream water to make them less bioavailable. In essence, they will be available for uptake in the gills and organs of all of the critters out there. So, yes, it impacts everything. And of course, once you impact that primary, the primary producers, it's just going to echo its way up the food web.
1: Footnote Sometimes great water quality is cast in an unfavorable light, as cool, clear waters are low in suspended particulates, including nutrients. Some would use low nutrient load to claim that an area supports few fish and is therefore poor quality habitat not just despite high water quality, but because of it. The Pebble Project Final Environmental Impact Statement, or EIS, has been criticized for misrepresenting data and ignoring best available science. For example, impacts due to road construction are projected in the final EIS as limited to the period of construction, despite well-established science demonstrating that roads restrict the natural movement of rivers and streams obstruct migration, and contribute to erosion and sedimentation in spawning areas. In places and periods where the final EIS for pebble mine does anticipate impacts to fish, mining proponents have mischaracterized high water quality as a bane rather than a boon. Sarah explains. So then they go on to say even that habitat
2: that will be impacted is... Poor quality, they call it. Throughout the EAS, they call habitat poor quality when it didn't support what they considered high numbers of salmon. Well, I mean, come on. There's no such thing as poor habitat in Bristol Bay at this point. It's pristine habitat that has maintained gazillions of millions of fish Over millennia. So there is no such thing as poor quality habitat out there. And it all works together to form the, you know, they're they're all pieces, no matter how small the streams, they're all pieces in the puzzle that ultimately sustain those fisheries and have for millennia. And the people that have depended upon them.
1: Too true. And let's talk about those people. We've touched on the ecological impacts, so let's switch gears and talk economic and cultural impacts. How big is the sockeye salmon economy and who depends on Bristol Bay sockeye, not just for employment, but for sustenance? The commercial
2: fishery is the basis of the cash economy in Bristol Bay. It's really important to remember, though, that, you know, there are... I. I think it's about 14 villages out there that have been out there for a hell of a lot longer than Europeans have been around who have been subsisting on those fisheries for millennia. And for those communities, they depend on those fish for food. There aren't grocery stores that you can just walk to or drive to in most of those villages. So they're primary source of food, and there are really good data that I don't have about just how much of their food resources come from the land.
1: Sarah's right. There are really good data on this, so I looked it up for us. A 2009 study by Fall et al. found that native communities in the Bristol Bay watershed consumed 507 pounds of wild foods per capita. Over half of that was wild salmon at 304 pounds per capita. For context, each year Americans consume an average of about 200 pounds of meat per person, and that includes red meat, poultry, fish, and seafood. Additional data on 17 communities in the Bristol Bay watershed found that annual wild food harvest amounted to 242 to 1210 pounds per person. In most of these villages, including 10 of the 12 native communities in the Nushagak and Kweejak watersheds, wild salmon was the dominant wild food source, making up over half the total poundage of wild foods harvested. Multiple studies have confirmed the health benefits of a salmon-rich diet and the economic, cultural, and nutritional values of subsistence fishing, hunting, and gathering. Now back to Sarah.
2: The sockeye are the largest, but it also includes other fish species. Chinook salmon are of huge value. And of course, there's moose and caribou and all kinds of things that would all be impacted by the mining activity out there that have maintained these communities for millennia. And so with respect to the cash economy, it provides about 14,000 jobs on an annual basis. And those are for people from all over. So people from all over the country flood in there in about June. And some people, some years make enough money to live on for the rest of the year.
1: In counterpoint to the local fishery economy and the subsistence fishery, what's the economic picture for the pebble mine? In back of
2: the envelope calculations which is really all my colleagues can do since we don't have all the details it doesn't pencil out there's no way it's profitable because of how much it will cost to get the infrastructure in there so it's important to remember with Pebble that you know there's the mine itself which is huge but because it's so remote it really is for large projects you have to get power in there so that's a natural gas pipeline You have to get the resource in and out, which is going to be a combination of a concentrate pipeline and a road, you know, like an 80-something mile long road, and then a deep water port. It's like four enormous projects, and they have to do all of those to get the tiniest amount of ore. Not only are they almost certainly going to continue to develop that resource, so will the other claims around them, because it will become infinitely less expensive for them to do so once all that infrastructure is in there. So that's how it turns
1: into a mining district. And now for a little background. In order to proceed, the Pebble Limited Partnership needs a permit under the Clean Water Act, a process which is conducted by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. In 2014, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, concluded an extensive watershed assessment of Bristol Bay, linked in the show notes. In the Bristol Bay watershed assessment, EPA concluded that the proposed Pebble mine would have, quote, unacceptable adverse effects, unquote, on the water, fisheries, and wildlife of Bristol Bay. Under Section 404C of the Clean Water Act, the EPA has the authority to deny or restrict activities where discharges associated with those activities in a specified area will, quote, have an unacceptable adverse effect on municipal water supplies, shellfish beds and fishery areas, including spawning and breeding areas, wildlife or recreational areas, unquote. In July 2019, the EPA reversed its 2014 decision and opted to defer to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers permitting process. In that process, mining proponents are required to minimize and or mitigate adverse environmental impacts. However, not all methods discussed in the final EIS for the Pebble Project are proven. For instance,
2: And there are places, selenium is a good example, which is teratogenic, you know, it causes deformations in fish and other critters and it also biomagnifies up the food web so it's of particular concern and we know that it will be a byproduct of mining activity in this region in spades and we also know that no one has to date ever successfully treated it to the levels that the mine proponents are talking about treating
1: it. That is especially concerning given everything we know about how selenium bioaccumulates and ends up affecting birds and other wildlife in addition to fishes and other aquatic organisms. Now, you brought up the massive infrastructure needs for this project. I'm imagining that there's all sorts of obstacles to undertaking a project like this in such a remote location. How has that been incorporated into the EIS?
2: There are so many issues with the remote nature of this place that really are not factored into the environmental impact statement. And the entire environmental impact statement hinges upon this assumption that they're going to develop less than a quarter of the actual resource when we know Once they get the infrastructure and everything else in there, they're not going to stop at a quarter of the resource when there's three quarters of it left still in the ground and they've already got access to all of it and all the investment into the infrastructure to get it out. So what they have proposed now is just a tiny fraction.
1: Dear listener, a lot has happened surrounding Pebble Mine since my conversation with Sarah which took place shortly after the final EIS for the Pebble Project was released by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Pebble tapes were released, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted his opposition to the mine, and both Alaska Senators, Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, made their first public statements opposing the mine. Then, on Monday, October 19, 2020, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers ruled to reject the current Pebble project proposal for failing to meet its mitigation burdens. The Corps has given the mining proponents 90 days to submit a revised proposal. Links to the final EIS and news coverage of recent events are listed in the show notes. Now, part of the mitigation in an EIS is the requirement that applicants propose alternatives to their desired action. The first alternative is usually no action, and agency officials are tasked with selecting the alternative that is least environmentally damaging. In the case of Pebble Mine, there were three alternatives presented in the final EIS, but they were not true alternatives. Now back to Sarah to clarify.
2: The mine site itself, which is going to generate the most toxicity, stays the same for every alternative. So the di- only difference differences between the alternatives are the alignment of the road and the location of the port and the pipeline. So the mind doesn't change in any of the, these alternatives. It's not like, oh, we could actually build a better tailing dam that is more likely to contain waste. In the case of Pebble, the fact that they are... Just railroading it through, I think it really shows in the quality of the AIS because they flatly ignore best available science time and again throughout that document.
1: That's so disappointing to hear. And now some closing thoughts from Sarah on Pebble Mine and Bristol Bay.
2: All of these diverse habitats—they're constantly changing. And some years are drier, and some years are wetter. There's all kinds of complexity to this habitat that these salmon have adapted to over millennia and is a major driver in what brings them back to within meters, in many cases, of the very habitat in which they were spawned and maintains the both life history diversity and genetic diversity and produces the overall sustainability of those Bristol Bay salmon populations. So protecting that diversity of habitats that a mine of this size in this place will inevitably simplify. I mean, there is just no way that this mine won't simplify a lot of habitat in that region, in the headwaters of the two largest producing sockeye salmon systems of Bristol Bay, of the world, there's no way that it won't simplify their habitat and that it is the diversity of habitat, you know, that really keeps them going.
1: Footnote, overlooking the importance of diversity for fostering resilience and sustainability of ecosystems is hardly unique to the final EIS for the Pebble Project. Part of Sarah's research concerns the nature of environmental regulations and in the case of environmental impact statements, they are intended to take all predictable impacts into account. But but
2: none of those impacts are taken together, which we know from decades of experience in the lower 48. It is all those impacts combined that are what ultimately have led to the extirpation and decline of so many of our salmon fisheries in the lower 48. It's not just like one mine or unfortunately because wouldn't that be great because then we could just oh we'll clean that up and everything would be fine but that's just not the case it's always a combination of factors and these environmental impact statements compartmentalize every aspect of every project as though they operate in isolation
1: well hopefully one day we will have better regulations but until then This has been such a wonderfully enlightening conversation, and it's been a delight to talk to you. So, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to talk to you. It has been great. And if you would like to get involved, the best thing you can do is vote. So if you haven't already, please be informed and please vote. If you would like to be even more informed, I've linked some great resources in the show notes, including one of Sarah's papers on the risks mines pose to fisheries, and a selection of news articles that give a recent timeline of events surrounding pebble. If you haven't heard or watched the pebble tapes, I recommend it. I also recommend watching Just Keep Swimming, a 30-minute documentary that came out earlier this year on Bristol Bay and Pebble Mine. To stay up to date, you can follow Trout Unlimited's campaign on social media to protect Bristol Bay. Links to all of that in the show notes, alongside links to Carol Ann Woody's book on Bristol Bay, Alaska, EPA's 2014 Bristol Bay Watershed Assessment, and the 2020 final EIS for Pebble Mine. Those links are also listed on the website at fisherwomenpod.wordpress.com forward slash episodes. And now, it's time for our weekly creature feature. This week's creature feature is on the least tern. It's our first bird, and it comes from Nora Papiung, wildlife biologist at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service.
3: The Arctic tern is a seabird in the order Charadriiformes and are most closely related to gulls. Arctic terns are a medium-sized tern, with pale gray plumage, a red bill, black cap, and long tail streamers. Arctic terns are best known for their astounding annual migration. Arctic terns breed on offshore islands as far south as Massachusetts, up to the Arctic tundra, and winter along the ice pack in Antarctica during the austral summer. In total, Arctic terns travel about 40,000 kilometers every year during migration. Given their average lifespan of about 20 years, a single tern may travel more than 800,000 kilometers or about 500,000 miles during its lifetime. Arctic terns are an incredibly resilient species. They were first decimated by European colonizers beginning in the 1600s. In the 1800s, Arctic tern breeding colonies were again decimated by the millinery, or feather trade. Arctic terns began to recover when open landfills were developed during the 1950s and the gull populations exploded. Gulls outcompete terns for nesting sites and prey upon Turn eggs and chicks. Seabird colony restoration is ongoing in many parts of the world, and especially in the Gulf of Maine. One area of research at seabird colonies is feeding studies. Like other species of terns, Arctic terns bring back whole fish and invertebrates to their chicks, and biologists have a very brief opportunity to identify the species of prey and estimate its size. Over time, we can track changes in fisheries due to ocean temperature and harvest pressure on certain species. Information on fisheries health and seabird productivity can provide a snapshot on ocean health and could be used to inform catch limits and other management to ensure the sustainable harvest of seafood and maintain
1: healthy oceans. Thank you, Nora, for that wonderful creature feature. And that is the show. Thank you once again to my wonderful guests, Sarah O'Neill and Nora Papiam. And thank you so much for joining me today on Fisherwomen. If you would like to learn more about Nora and her work on threatened and endangered coastal birds, please refer to the resources listed in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps. If you would like to submit a creature feature for a future episode, please visit the website at fisherwomenpod.wordpress.com or follow the links in the show notes for more information. You can also follow Fisherwomen on social media, it's at FisherwomenPod on Instagram and Twitter. The Fisherwomen theme was mixed by me, using sounds sourced from SFX Go, Orange Free Sound, and Free Sound. Cover photo for this episode comes from Sarah O'Neill. And now for a brief announcement. As of this episode, I am switching to a release schedule of once every two weeks. I hope you'll stick with the show. I think this change of pace is necessary to maintain the quality and my sanity. So I will see you all back here on Monday, November 9. Until then, happy voting.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening and until next week, stay salty.